Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. It is day 25. We are halfway through this thing. Uh, day 25 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50 Day Writing Challenge, first draft edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. And this week, we're talking about what you might need in your early pages to make a successful story, novel, and even memoir or screenplay, other forms of writing as well. Today, we're specifically talking about idea that comes from Henry James. And his idea, I'm paraphrasing, character determines incident, incident reveals character. And we'll then also be talking about how, what the connection really is between character and event in your book. So we've got two absolutely amazing authors. We've got Lisa Haynes and Catherine Sherbrooke. Lisa Haynes' novel, Book of Knives, is just out from source books. Rick Moody says of her work, Haynes is an astute psychologist, a cool, unsentimental investigator of humans who often locates the hard truths. Her four earlier books are When We Disappear, Girl in the Arena, Small Acts of Sex and Electricity, and In My Sister's Country. Lisa, you just have amazing titles. Her work has been optioned by HBO and other production companies. She has been a fellow at VCCA and Ragdale, a Briggs Copeland lecturer at Harvard and a senior writer in residence at Emerson College. Catherine Sherbrooke is the author of a family memoir called Finding Home and three novels, the New York Times notable Leaving Coys Hill, which was selected for the 2022 Massachusetts Book Awards Honors in Fiction Prize, and Fill the Sky, the winner of 2017 Independent Press Award and a finalist for the Mary Sarton Award of Contemporary Fiction. Her newest novel, The Hidden Life of Astra Kelly, is set to publish in April of 2023. She currently serves as chair of the board of Grub Street, the nation's largest created writing center and Boston's first public art space dedicated to the written word. And yes, I am a big um, <laughs> dedicated instructor of Grub Street and that's what we run the novel incubator program through. Uh, she shares her new empty nest in Cohasset um, with her husband and Black Lab. Okay, the idea of character determines incident, incident reveals character. We've touched on this a little bit um, in a couple past shows. It is that there's something in your character, something in their past, a misbelief that they might hold, a flaw that, them, that they might have that's been holding them back for, the, for most of their lives, um, a wound that they have. And that is what's going to, or hopefully, call into um uh call for the event or incident that happens to them in the book because because the event or incident needs to test them in some way or needs to um, resonate with who they are deep down in some way for for the book to work um, and then how they react to that incident or event is going to show us even more of the character and we'll talk more about the kind of other side on the ending side um, in a few weeks but um Lisa, let's start with you. How do you um, connect character and incident in your work or character and event? Well, I was thinking about the fact that this is kind of Henry James's chicken and egg. It's, it's so hard to know the source at any point, but I think over time, the whole process of getting there becomes more subconscious. Sometimes I will even drop an event or an object into a work, having no idea whatsoever what I'm going to do with it. And then I'm working back toward it, trying to sort out if it really will stick and if it has the kind of connection I'm looking for. Is that what happened with the knives in your most recent book? 
I did. I started out with knives. I had no idea what I was going to do, but it's, it's really about a, a, a woman who's a widow and she, mm-hmm. she both wants to sort of have her, her husband come back and appear to her and be with her. And at the same time, she wants to run from the grieving process. So she too quickly ends up marrying his best friend. Yes. And the knives is interesting in that because it's it, they're basically a metaphor for domesticity. Um, and for a woman that is desperately holding on to them, and, and yet they're very dangerous to her. Um, yeah, and knives are, they start, you know, we cut the umbilicus at, at yeah. birth, right? And we rend the cloth at death. So they yes. follow us along and and they are terrifying and we and they're t- our tools. We have to learn how to use them, whether we're hunters and gatherers or hanging out in the kitchen. Yes. They're a part of life. Yes, excellent. And Kathy, um, I'm so glad to have Kathy here. She, she's done so much for Grub Street and for writers. Um, it's really exciting. And she's up early with us. Um, Kathy, how about you? For you, how what does character have to do an event in your in your work? How have you have you how have you struggled with that? Found that in your work? Mm. Well, good morning, everybody, and awesome to be here. Um, I, you know, what Lisa just said about um, I think it's really interesting that your novel is about domesticity because, for me, and I think for so many of us, right, the, the writing the novel is often about getting at our humanity, and so we might want to tell quiet stories or called quiet stories or um, stories of people in their life, whether that's a marriage or a friendship story. And it took me a long time to realize that this finding this incident, sometimes we go for something really dramatic, but it's outside the character. Um, And so it's finding that incident that is unique to that character and, and not just for their development, but in a lot of ways to say to the reader, look here, this is the thing you should be looking at. So I just had a quick example because I just find it really helpful by example. Um, If any of you know the book Ordinary People by Judith Guest, it's also an incredible movie. I mean, Mm -hmm. and the title, right? Ordinary People. So it's this suburban story of this mother who wants her life to look perfect to everybody. And then her young son, Conrad, well, he's like a teenager who just wants unconditional love from his mother. And so you can imagine there's lots of emotional tension, but it could be very subtle. But the the inciting incident, or there are really two of them, that happened before the book opens is that Conrad's older brother, who's the cherished child, has died in a boating accident, and Conrad has tried to kill himself and survived. And so you open in this scene where now we've got this mom who's literally angry because she literally says, he says, she's angry at him because he bled on her towels right? And he just wants to be loved and be this normal, perfect child. And he's just gotten out of mental hospital and he's got scars that he can't ever get rid of. And so that sets up all the tension that they're in complete opposition with each other, what they want, they think they want because of this incident. Um, And it's, and it's obviously the drama is super heightened. So every conversation is loaded in that way. And so some of the conversations may not have been any different without those incidents, except in the reader's mind now, it's like, oh my God, the stakes couldn't be any higher. And so it sets up that that drama in a, com- in a completely different way and makes them 
both drives the story, but turns them into who they are. Yes. So Conrad has to literally heal from this incident. So um, notice it turns them who, into who they are. Who they are. Um, that inci- incident in term- determines character. Right. So you're finding a moment in the character's life <clears throat> Um, and that's the moment that you're focusing the novel on or focusing the story on that they become who they are. It's a major turning point in, the, in their life. And that's why you're focusing on that part of their life um, and right. none other. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I love this idea of humanity because, um, you know, the reason why we want to um, put them in an event or an incident or have something occur to them that resonates very deeply with their flaws or wound or past or something and wakes it up and forces them to have to deal with it again is because we're trying to reveal their humanity. It's not because we're sadistic. Um, We're actually trying to, well, maybe we are, maybe we're also sadistic, but we're also trying to break open everything that they've used in their lives as survival mechanisms to cover up and pretend that everything is okay um, and pretend that everything is going along just fine and, and, and just kind of function. Um, and, and that's not, um, and they, and they can continue to function like that, but that's why the event or incident occurs because it's going to throw them off their game and force them to have to deal with it. And it's also going to open up their humanity to us. And it's what invites us into the story um, because we are attracted to broken characters. We're attracted to characters that are having to deal with real life scenarios and having to dig deep um, in order to find their way forward. Um, And those are the characters that we fall in love with the most. Um, And if a character has a goal, let's say they want to rob a bank or they want to find a killer or they want to, uh, like in Katie Kitamura's, uh first book oh shoot it wasn't in intimacies um i always forget the names anyway katie kitamura's um one of her novels she's trying to find her husband in order to get a divorce that's it <laughs> that's 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 her goal and when she goes she travels abroad to try to find him in greece and he's actually missing from the hotel and so the so the rest of it really forces her to face her marriage, face why she was with him in the first place, face what she was looking for with him in the first place. And actually the emptiness of his hotel room is in when she opens the door and it's a complete mess, in many ways is a metaphor for their entire marriage. Um, so it just works in a, in a, in a beautiful, beautiful way. Um, uh, and so always thinking about, okay, if you've set a goal for your character, and we always talk about the character has to have, what does the character want? They have to have a concrete goal. Think about, well, why? Why are you putting this particular character through the paces of that goal? Um, because otherwise, that goal is just going to run with the plot, and it's not going to have any meaning at all for the reader. And it's not going to have any meaning at all for, um, for the writer. And you'll probably fizzle out. And the goal, I think, is really interesting. And because we talk a lot about what the character thinks they want versus what, you know, what they want versus what they need. And so how do you, I think one of the most important lessons I I learned in a craft class was that everything you do needs to do double duty, needs to do or, or triple duty. And so how does the incident also describe that? So, you know, back to this example, Conrad thinks he needs his mother's unconditional love. He, he, you could almost argue he attempted suicide because he wanted to have that exalted position that his, his, his gone brother has. 
and, and sort of get attention in that way. And, but what he learns is he needs to learn to love himself and literally heal in that way. And so it just keeps going back to this incident. You know, you yeah. talked about repetition. There was some conversation a couple of days ago about the, the importance of repetition and repeating these things. I think it's why symbols work, you know, that I'm fascinated by this idea of the knives, yes. right? So like, you can't get that, the knives, the knives, the knives, it stands for something or the empty hotel room and this wound, right? The Conrad has literally, you, you can't avoid it. So it's again, saying to the reader, this is where you need to look. Um, and just keeps driving the story throughout. Yes. Yeah. So that Katie, oh, I'm sorry, just to, that Katie Kitamura novel is called A Separation. Um, I loved her next novel, Intimacy, so much that that name of the novel just always replaces my head. But if you want to find it, it's called A Separation. Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the knives in my book are very busy. (laughs) They're disappearing. They're showing up in bad places. They're cutting off chickens' heads. You know, they're just, they're running rampant. But I I was thinking about um, Far From the Matting Crowd Mm. and how it has these two very uh, profound, inciting incidents. One is Farmer Oak, who's a relatively simple man who just wants to have a nice sheep farm and has 100 acres and 200 sheep. And his dog drives all of them over. And that that ruins any chance he has to not only succeed in his business world, but to have a wife and so forth. And the object of his affection is uh, a woman who is just, she is a troublemaker. She's an independent woman. And suddenly she inherits a fortune. Mm. And so we watch this balance of power tip back and forth. And we see it in the microcosm of when they have a conversation or an argument, we see the power shift back and forth. And then it also echoes the culture of the time. What is the standing of a man or a woman and what type of power do they have? And where are you breaking the rules? So is it his story or hers or both? Well, I, it's it's hers and the fact that we follow her through different relationships. Mm. But he's always a presence. Right. He keeps returning. And, and though they seem to part company initially, we know it's like Chekhov's gun. You know, we know that they are, it's Chekhov, right? Who did yeah. the gun? Yeah. <laughs> they, they know that we know they're, they're, they are bound to come back. They're in, almost in a faded way. And they do, of course, conveniently show up in different times, but it doesn't feel like an awkward convenience. Um, so first, bringing up Chekhov's gun is very good because that the saying, the idea basically is if you introduce, well, I think he says specifically, if you if you introduce a gun in Act One, it has to go off by Act Three. Um, and you might think, oh, that's just plot, but what it really is is paying attention to the details that you have already given to your audience, and then using them and being responsible to them. Um, and so you're. Oftentimes your subconscious, um, your pages that you've already written are giving you your story. And if you just keep burrowing back and looking back to what your story has already given you, you can usually find your way forward. And so that has to do with character, that has to do with image, it has to do with event, like parallel events or repeating events in some way that feel that they are, like we talked about Wizard of Oz, the killing of the witch, the killing of the neighbor. Um, Lisa, that... um, 
That is really interesting because it sounds like a character that is not quite the protagonist is taking a lot of attention in that book. I don't see why not, right? Yeah. And it sounds like he is because he's a rather broken character who's also lost a great deal. It's is that at the beginning of the of the story, yeah. um, and so we follow for that. Um, and and I, I'd be curious: does the author build his background at all, his past experience at all, um, to make that loss particularly poignant? Boy, there's a good question. I would have to go back. For yeah. Another- read and to determine that. Um, I think it's really more about how he's going to cobble things together and get back to where he was and maybe even succeed further. Yeah. And so there's probably something in his past or in his character that this idea of success is so important and encapsulates who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, And he probably has to revisit that and figure that out because it probably isn't success that's actually going to allow him to move forward, I would guess. I mean, that's how I would move backward from the incident. So, because sometimes you find the event or incident first, and then you have to move backwards into the character and understand the character. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, it's a really good example of that. I think that I was thinking about is good old Great Gatsby. Yeah. Right. It's the story of right. Gatsby wants the girl. And he has set up his whole life to set up this social construct. And they throw these incredible parties, hoping that she's just going to show up and she never does. And so Nick Carraway as our observer on the first read, it's like, okay, why is this guy telling the story? But then you realize he's the one he's got the social capital. Actually, he's living in this little cottage, but he knows Daisy and he's the one able to get her literally invite her over so that Gatsby can see her again. But it's again, in doing the double duty, you realize that Gatsby will never be that person. He will never have that social capital ever. Yeah. He will never fit into that society. So while it could just be a story about, you know, will they get back together? It, the story is so much bigger than that. And so you need that, that incident of Nick Carraway kind of moving into the neighborhood. It, it could be, it can't be just anyone in a way for that story to really work at its deepest level. And, and their past or their hangups are, is what causes the conflict. <clears throat> because that, that could be simply said, boy wants girl. Um, that's, that's the basic, you know, Gatsby wants to get the girl. Um, Daisy and Gatsby have the same goal. They want to be together. So why doesn't it work? Well, the problem is that Daisy just wants to move forward into the future. And Gatsby is so stuck in the past that he wants Daisy to say that he's never been, she's never been in love with anybody else. He wants to erase the past completely. And that's also about where he comes from, his own hangups about who he is and his determination that he is a, is a newly made man and he, um, he has to erase the past. And because he holds on to that and because he forces her into that, and won't accept her love otherwise, um, then, then they can't be together. I mean, because their goal is the same, but their idea of the goal is so caught up in who they are um, that, that, they, that creates the conflict. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Can we talk for a moment about Alice in Wonderland? Please. Yes. So Alice, the inciting incident, she's, she's falling through the tree. She's falling asleep, but she's falling through the tree. And the first decision she has to make is, it, essentially, is she going to get larger or smaller? Drink me, eat me. 
And if she gets larger, then she's growing up and then that becomes very awkward and somebody could, you know, run after and try and chop off her head. Right. Right. Um, If she gets smaller, then, you know, someone could step on her. And it's also, does she really want to go backwards? She's in that point of life of heading toward adulthood. And so she's going to be put through an awful lot to try and just figure out as, as the, um, who says it over and over, who am I? Oh, it's the, uh, caterpillar, right? Yes. Yes. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And, um, yeah, so you have a character who's rebelling, yeah. right? Which, which is propelling her more towards independence and towards the adult self. Um, she's doing something that she shouldn't be doing, sleeping in a tree. Um, and yet <clears throat> the rebellion is really childish, <laughs> Um, she can't, so she's both wanting the freedom of adulthood, but also the insistence of remaining a child and not taking on the responsibility of remaining a child. So she's going to be forced to make a choice or, or forced in some way to face that dilemma. Um, and, and, um, and it's interesting because you would say, well, that's almost any child at that age, but I think it's very, it becomes very particular to her as, as the story continues and her world is obviously very particular she has to deal with this giant baby who doesn't behave at all right it's like her baby self it's very fun all the way through we have a question in the chat couldn't a gun represent a constant threat that never goes off kathy or (laughs) i love throwing my guest questions yeah right (laughs) um way too early in the morning and making them answer yeah well, I think there are two two things that those questions get to. I think what Chekhov means by that in many ways is that you, you have to make a pact with the reader at a certain at a certain level that if you're going to really put emphasis on something as a major symbol, that it needs to actually have significance and not just be a red herring. Otherwise, then that's disappointing for the yeah. for the reader at the end of the day. Now, can there be tension that never actually gets to something severe. Yeah. I think you can do that in lots of different ways. And then the story is about something different, but you know, it's about kind of following through for the reader at some level. And those are the sorts of books I kind of love. So you're kind of set up um, to expect a certain outcome, like for a thriller or a mystery or something. And then the book becomes about actually something else, Um, Mm. something much deeper, again, something that does more for the characters. So it might not be somebody getting shot, but it might be um, a culpability or a death or a guilt that um, comes to the surface in some other way that the gun predicted to begin with. Um, as, as a sort of metaphor, but it again becomes, it becomes deeper and it doesn't just become a simple shot. And I also think, um, you want to be careful if you make a prediction like that, let's say you have a gun. Um, and let's say early on in the story that Eddie has the gun. I'm just making this up and everyone's worried that Eddie's going to shoot himself by accident. And then if Eddie then later shoots himself by accident, you think, oh, it actually came true, but that's, that's not an interesting story. Um, you want the prediction to, um, I, I always go back to this idea of um, 
the inevitable made mm. the, uh, the impossible made inevitable. Mm. So um, we shouldn't be able to predict that Eddie's going to shoot himself with a gun. Um, that shouldn't have been given to us early on. And yet we might have been given seeds all along that it's actually Nancy that's going to be shoot, shooting herself with a gun. So when we get to the end and that actually happens, we look back and we think, oh, my God, <laughs> I should have known that the whole time. And yet early on in the in the book of the story, it seemed impossible. So I also talk about the idea of a slant rhyme. If you give if you give a prediction that something's going to happen, let's say so and so is going to get in a car crash. Um, because I don't know, Eddie, I'm, I'm picking on Eddie. Eddie's behind the wheel. Um, what happens later would hopefully be not an exact rhyme, but a slant rhyme of that. So it's kind of fulfilling that prediction, but differently than we would expect. So let's say that the whole time we've been worried that Eddie's going to get drunk and kill someone behind the wheel. And instead, later on, Eddie's the one that gets run over by somebody. Um, again, that's the kind of slant rhyme you might think about. That's right. Anna Karenina, right? Anna Karenina watches at the very beginning of the novel, she watches a man uh, who's working on the train get crushed by the train. Yeah. And later, spoiler alert, she's throwing toward the end of the novel, she's throwing herself in front of the train. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so we just answered the question in the chat. I hope for Catherine, what is an example of a book that sets up an outcome and then changes. Kathy, do you have other examples that come to mind? Oh, I just, I, it's like, it's a little too early in the morning. I was just thinking, what is this book I just read? Cause I literally said to somebody, I didn't see the end coming and yet it was totally inevitable. Yes. Which is the, is the ultimate. It's what you were saying, Michelle of, oh my God, of course. Yes. But it's not such an, of course, that from page five, you're like, oh, well, I know this is, this is going to end. What was yeah. Oh, um, I'll out if I can think of it. Yeah. And, um, but now we've completely walked away from our subject at hand, but I do think, <laughs> <laughs> but notice, I do think if you're following your character in terms of how does, what is, why do you give them that particular goal in terms of what tests they need to undergo in terms of what journey they really need to undergo to move forward um, and, and understanding their past, understanding their hangups, understanding their misbeliefs, understanding their flaws to give you your plot, you will end up with an ending that can prove inevitable and, and, and also very, very interesting to the reader. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, especially, oh yeah, especially when what they think that they want is what they is not what they need. Right. I mean, a great example of this always is it's a wonderful life, right? Yeah. He thinks the whole time that what he needs is to get out of town to be somebody. Mm -hmm. And finally in the end realizes actually that it's, he is somebody that it's about sort of welcoming the love of the people around you. And so the whole story is set up for him trying to like get out in multiple yeah. ways. And then it turns on itself in that way, because it's, that's who he is as a character. And it makes him sets him off on that journey. Autumn is acting. Do you uh, is asking? Do you plant these hints in revision? And again, though, I think it's looking at Lisa. What do you think? It's looking at for me what the text is already giving you. So you're not planting things. It's right. what's already there to use. So let me be a little contrary. Okay. Don't think of revision as one step. Right. One event or one time period. I just think you're writing all the way through until you're done. 
And so, you know, whether you compare it to, you know, block a stone that you're chiseling away at to get where you're going. And sometimes you lop off a nose and you have to pitch the whole stone out and start over. Um, I, I don't see it as a separate. Right. And so I'm willing to throw out a whole book if I need to, or, and get down to one chapter and start over. Um, what was the question again? So I make sure I answer it. <laughs> Do you plant these hints in revision? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you might realize that there's something more to be found. Um, and then you see how, how that works out. And structurally, sometimes you're, you're moving your hints about. Yeah. As, as you continue, yeah. But again, I think your subconscious, your subconscious, not even just the character's subconscious works in. So this most yep. recent novel I've been working on, so my, my, I lost my mother last January, which is one of the reasons I'm actually doing this whole thing um, because we, I, was so, I self-published her book, but I felt it was too late and I wanted to make sure that I helped other authors earlier. Um, the most recent book I was working on, I realized that there a mother figure was sneaking in all over the place. And so, and I was trying to take the plot in other directions. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I actually think I need to use this, make use of this for the character. Um, and now it's, it's deepening the whole book, actually, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm forcing myself to, to take what my manuscript was giving me um, and, and to deepen it. And, and Virginia Woolf calls this idea the, she, the gathering in, that you kind of gather in what your, what your first draft might be giving you. Um, and you try to deepen um, uh, that material and use that material as you go forward. Yeah, the way I would say that really quickly, because I know we're almost there, is that at the end of a first draft, often the biggest question I have to ask myself is, what is this really about? Yeah. <laughs> and written a whole first draft. And then in it, then to me, that's when the revision process start. And then that's often when I have to figure out when I figure out where it needs to start and therefore what the inciting incident really is. Yes. Um, and it's not easy to always know that from the yes. beginning. And it, it will take several passes and, and there really isn't a separation between the first draft and revision. We just, I'm, we're just talking that way because it makes it easy to, to do the podcast, <laughs> um, but you're always revising. Do I have time to throw out a title that's just sure. in this? It's The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. Oh, I love that book. Maggie O'Farrell and, yes. and this woman suddenly gets a call and her great aunt who she didn't even know existed um, has lived her entire adult life in a psychiatric institution which is now closing and would the uh, great niece like to be totally responsible for her yes. what a great setup and having and that forces the niece to go back into her family history and um, to 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 understand a, a major tragedy that happened in the family history. So that's the vanishing act of Esme Lennox um, by Maggie O'Farrell. I absolutely recommend that book. It's actually one of my favorites of hers. Okay, we need to get these folks to their writing desk. It's Friday. What else could you possibly want to do on a Friday? Um, tomorrow we're going to talk about how to evoke tension in your story with Katrine Schumann, 
She's the author of This Terrible Beauty. Um, if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, and rate the 7 a.m. Novelist podcast. You can find it on Substack or other podcast platforms. And you can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. If you know people that still want to join the writing challenge, we still have 25 days left. That's almost an entire NaNoWriMo, so you can still do it. Uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Lisa, so much for getting up early and giving your time. And I hope everyone has a fantastic writing day. Thank you. What you lost, have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why there is nothing here at all.